Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. I can bend down. It's good. If you weren't here last week, you know that I had a little bit of a back issue. And I'll tell you, what the Lord does to me once in a while is when I, I get to uh, needing to learn a lesson, sometimes he just makes it so that I can't do anything but lay on the ground. It says, you're going to learn. So it's happened once or twice in my life. I'm glad to be back with you. Um, a couple of reminders for you, or one reminder for you as we kind of get going today. Uh, we're going to be in John 13, so if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 13 and take a look at that, um, and we'll be there in just a moment. I did want to remind you, next Sunday is our baptism service, and so I just wanted to encourage you again, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you have not displayed that you're a follower of Jesus through obedience to his command to be baptized, I just want to encourage you uh, that today can be that day. Uh, I want to encourage you that uh, you need to take that step towards baptism. He's commanded it. He's called us to it. He's told us to proclaim that we have been washed by his blood and given new life in him. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been yet been baptized, man, take that step with us uh, this year. Now, we'd love for you to do that. There's a class right after services today uh, where you can come and learn more about baptism if you want to. If you've already signed up, you know you're coming to that. We'll talk a little bit about uh, baptism, what it is, why we celebrate it. Uh, what it means, and then we'll talk about some of the details of the baptism service. If you haven't signed up, you can still come. We'd love to have you come uh, and join us. You can get some more information right in the lobby after the service um, and make your way there after the second service. We'd love to see you there, okay? Let me pray together, and we'll uh, dive into God's Word. So we thank you for your Word, and we've come to learn from it and through it. And thank you for the reminder that we've just sung, yet not I, but through Christ in me. So we have come to hear your Word through your spirit, that it might change us and impact us. It's a living word. It has power to divide joint and marrow. It has power to discern our motives and to guide and direct us. It has power to speak into our lives and to bring transformation. And so we give ourselves to the study of your word now. We turn to it, trusting in your power, Holy Spirit, to move through your word to teach and instruct us. I pray that you would make uh, my mind sharp now, make my mouth yours, so that you would teach us today. I pray for my brothers and sisters, that as they hear your word today, what would grow in them is a love for you and a love for your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been in a series in the Gospel of John. If you've been with us and kind of tracking along, uh, the thing that I want to let you know is we were supposed to cover John 12 last week, and we have set up the series in such a way that we have planned to get to the crucifixion and the resurrection on Palm Sunday and on Easter Sunday. So in order to do that, we are going straight to John 13 this week. But here's what we're going to do, because John 12 is important, yes, all of God's word is important. I'm gonna record a little something this week and put it up on the website. It's gonna be like a Bible study of John chapter 12. So if you want to get sort of that John 12 content, come to the website this week. We'll post it and have a discussion there for you of what John 12 is all about and, uh, and do a little study together that way. Okay, fair enough. We're gonna look at John 13 this week. So here's what's going on. 
as we move from John 12 to John 13, we are moving from Jesus' final words in his public ministry in John 12, the last things he's going to say sort of to the crowds. And now in John chapter 13, we're picking up what he's gonna say to his disciples, to those who are closest to him. And he's gonna give instruction to them in John 13, all the way up through John 17, in what we call the upper room discourse. It's a section of of the gospel of John where he is uh, over the last supper, with the disciples reflecting on some very important things for them. These are the moments leading up to his cross and before he's arrested and tried and crucified and buried and then resurrected. Before all that's gonna take place, he has some important things to share with his disciples. And so we come to John 13 today and it's the first of those lessons, the first of the things that he wants to give us instruction in. And as I was thinking about John 13 this week, I got to thinking about, do you have pieces of information that just don't seem to stick in your brain? Do you have those things you have to be reminded of again and again? Anybody like that? I have this weird thing where I can never remember what time the kid's school bus comes. I have to be reminded every day. I put them on the bus all the time And for some reason, I can never remember. I'm standing here right now and I'm thinking, is it 8.38 or 8.42? And I still don't know. I get reminded every day and there's something about that piece of information for some reason that it will not stick in my brain. Do you have one of those? Maybe it's somebody's name. Maybe it's a time that something has to be done. Maybe it's a day that this thing's supposed to take place or that thing's supposed to take place. But sometimes we have those pieces of information that no matter how many times they get repeated to us, and I'm sure my wife is tired of telling me the time. I'm sure she just probably mouthed to me whatever the time is, whether it's 838 or 842, or maybe neither of those, (laughs) that the bus comes. I'm sure she gets tired of repeating that. We all have those things. Well, as we come to John chapter 13 today, I think we may be coming to one of those pieces of information that has to be repeated for us again and again. Because you know that, that the reason I forget the time is because it fades into the background of life. There's this background to our lives that it's, you know, things in the foreground, we see them. They, they pop up, they're right there and they're big moments and so we see them. But sometimes it's the day-to-day stuff, it's the background sort of that's in the, in the background of our lives and in our vision that we, we just forget. We have to be reminded of again and again. And as we come to John 13, we come to this this lesson that Jesus wants to teach us about what it means to be a part of a thing called the church. He's gonna talk to us about what it means to be one of his followers together. And in doing so, he's gonna give us two lessons that I think sometimes fade into the background of our lives and we we have to be reminded of again and again. So John 13 really teaches us two lessons. Number one, we must love each other. We must love each other. As followers of Jesus, and I don't just mean here at West Shore Free, we are an expression of the big C church, the church that exists, that's every follower of Jesus across time and across place. And we are called to by God, not not suggested, but mandated to love each other. And so that has to be expressed and realized here at West Shore Free in the same way that it must be realized across the globe. As, As believers gather in every place around the world today, to celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus. And that we have a king who reigns on high and loves us and purchased us with his blood. The call comes to every single one of us, love each other, love each other, love each other, love each other. And I wonder if sometimes, because the church is this background part of our lives, you know, the church becomes the people hopefully that are our best friends. 
the people that we gather with each week and we, and we just maybe take for granted that we gather with these people every week and we see them and here they are and here we are and we, we sort of live life around each other and among one another and we bump into each other at the coffee shop and we sort of do life together in all these different ways. I wonder if sometimes because that's the background of our lives, that sometimes if we, we forget that we are called to love each other. And there's a specific way that we're called to love each other. Here's the second lesson of John chapter 13. It's not just love each other. It's love each other through costly service. Love each other through costly service. We're gonna see Jesus give a new commandment today in the middle of John chapter 13. He's gonna say a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. But he's demonstrated before that at the beginning of the chapter what that love is supposed to look like when he takes off his outer garments, gets down on his hands and knees, gets a basin of water and washes his disciples' feet. He says, if I've done this for you, you ought to do it for one another. And so that's where we get our two pieces of our lesson today. Part one, love each other. Part two, love each other through costly acts of service, through things that cost you. That's the call. So here's my hope today. I don't just wanna simply remind us of that. I'm sure you can get now, probably go through a laundry list of ways that God might invite you to serve those around you in a costly fashion and therefore demonstrate your love for them. And in demonstrating your love for them, demonstrating his love for them. And by the way, reminding yourself of his love for you as you do that. I'm sure you could come up with a laundry list of those kinds of things. In fact, something may come to mind right now, but here's what I wanna do. I don't just wanna sort of rehearse this idea that we must love each other through costly acts of service. I wanna show you why. Because John gives us in John chapter 13 and in one spot in one of his epistles, his first epistle, gives us some really good understanding of why it is that this is the way that we're supposed to love each other. And here's my hope. My hope is that if you have never loved the church, that you would begin to love the church now. If you need a love that's reawakened in your life, that you would have a love for the church reawakened in you. That it would be restored and renewed. That you would walk out of here today going, Jesus has purchased a people for himself and I am called to love that people no matter what. I'm supposed to have a special affection in my heart for the people who are also washed in the blood of Jesus as I am washed in the blood of Jesus. I am to love them like I love no one else. They are mine, I am theirs. We are one people, we are one church and I must love them. That's the call today. My hope is that you'll see it. The question in front of us then is, have we allowed our love for the church to languish? Have we allowed it to sort of peter out or to grow cold? Today's text calls us back to reawaken a fresh and a new, a love for the church. So let's look at it together and we'll see these two lessons. Look with me first at John chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. I wanna give you five reasons Christ commands us and calls us to love the church and to love the church through costly acts of service. So beginning in verse 31 of chapter 13, we find this. It says, when he had gone out, this speaking about Judas, who's gone out to betray Jesus. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. 
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So as we look at that text, we're reminded when Jesus starts talking about being glorified and the Father glorifying himself through the Son, he's pointing to his cross and he's reminding us. He's saying, the cross is the ultimate display of my glory. It may seem upside down. It may seem like the cross is is defaming, shaming. It may seem like the cross is loss, but in fact, the cross is glory and the cross is victory for me, the Son of Man. Because it's in it that God reveals his ultimate purposes for the world. And so as I come to the cross now, I prepare you by saying, I'm going to go somewhere you can't come. In other words, I'm going to leave you now. And what's the first thing that Jesus wants to say to them in light of the fact that he will no longer be with them? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That you love one another. So here's the first thing we see in verse 35 when he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The first reason we see why Christ calls us to love and to love through costly service is that we want other people to know Christ. That's the first reason. We want other people to know Christ. So as Jesus is preparing to leave, he says, I want you to love each other. And the whole purpose of the gospel of John, if we remember, is that John is saying, I'm recording all the works and all the words of Jesus that I, that I am recording here, the ones I'm putting down. I'm putting down so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that in, in seeing that, in knowing that, in believing that you would have life in his name. And that purpose still reigns over this gospel, even as we come to the section of it where he's gonna talk to his disciples. And he's gonna specifically give them instruction. Even as he's giving them instruction, his mission in the world is still on his mind because what does he say to them? I want you to love each other. Why? So that you would feel good about one another? No, so that the world would know that you belong to me. You will be known as mine when you love with a unique kind of love. And when you do that, when you form the kind of community that is so saturated in a God-stained love, when you form that among one another, the world will take notice. They will see it. And when they see it, then my mission will go forward in the world. So the first motive, disciples, that I want you to have in terms of your need to love one another is that if you love each other, more people will know me. You want them to know me. I've sent you out now. I'm getting ready to leave you. And when I leave you, you're going to be the ones who are going to represent me. And this thing will die out with the 12 of you if you don't love each other. But when you love each other, and because you love each other, the world will take notice. And as the world takes notice, they will take notice that you've been with me. Not that you're educated, not that you're incredibly wise, not that you're winsome or talented, not that you have the world on a string, not that they wanna be like you because you seem like you've got it all together, They will want to see the God that you worship because of how you love each other. That's the first thing that we see. Now, that's a pretty straightforward concept, right? Love creates a compelling community, a group of people that others would want to be a part of because let's be honest, who doesn't want to be a part of a group of people who love well, yes? I mean, how many of us have been a part of groups that we wish, man, I wish they loved a little better, 
right? We all love the idea of being a part of a community that loves well. And so that's what Jesus is getting at. And it's not complicated, but let's draw a couple of implications here that are important for us to remember. Implication number one of this reality is that to be effective in Christ's mission, I have to love his church. That's what he's just taught us. If I'm gonna be effective for Christ in the world, I can't do that unless I love the church, unless I love his people. If I don't love them, I can have all these grand ideas about being a great ambassador for Christ and about being amazing in the marketplace and in sharing my faith. I can think about going to the other side of the world, to another country and planting myself there in hard soil and saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to win people to Christ and see them come to know him and worship him. And I can be filled with all kinds of knowledge and information and understanding. But if I do not love the church, I will be hindered in the mission of Christ in the world. That's implication number one. Implication number two is if I don't love the church, I don't truly love God's mission in the world. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't begin to think to yourself, I love seeing people come to know Jesus. I love the mission of Christ in the world and what God is up to in the world. I wanna be a part of it. If you don't love the church, you don't love his mission. And then finally, a last implication is one that I think is so important. Here's the thing I notice. I notice that sometimes in order to be sympathetic towards and relate well to those who are outside the church, those who don't believe, often those who have had a bad experience in the church and therefore have walked away from the church. We, we have friends like this, yes? We all have friends like this. Had a bad experience, walked away from the church. I notice that people who are followers of Jesus sometimes will disparage the church in order to relate well to that person. To say, yeah, I get it, the church is messed up, the church is this, the church is that. And we think what we're doing is making it easier for them to say, okay, well, here's a believer who gets that the church can be messed up sometimes. And so in disparaging the church, we think we're drawing them closer to the church and we are doing the exact opposite. We are reinforcing their stigma towards the church. Never make the mistake of speaking ill of God's people so that you think an unbeliever will be drawn closer to Jesus. That's not how it works. You speak about the church as the bride of Jesus, whom he loves and is purifying. How dare you or I speak ill of God's church? Because it is Jesus' bride. Now, husbands, if someone insults your wife, you're gonna be a little ticked off about that? You better be. You're gonna speak up and you're gonna say something? You will not speak about my wife that way. I hope some of you have said that to your kids. No one speaks about my bride that way because she's mine and I adore her and I love her. And when we speak ill of the church, we speak ill of the bride of Christ. He died to purchase her. She is washed in his blood and she is being renewed. He adores his bride and he calls you who are part of his bride to adore his bride. I read an article that reminded me of this truth this week. It was in the Wall Street Journal and it was, uh, from a pastor who had legitimately had a hard situation occur in his church and eventually had been let go from his position or had left his position. And there was some consternation between him and the elders of the church where he had served. And 
There's no doubt about it. It was a hard situation. And I, I don't pretend to know all the details of it. But in this Wall Street, this is a Wall Street Journal article. This pastor and his wife spent time talking about all the faults and failings of the church they had been a part of. And all I could think to myself was, this, is, this crushes me. This saddens me. Because he's litigating an issue he has within the body of Christ out in front of the world. Why? What good comes from that? He's being used by a secular world to do exactly what they want to do, run down the church and all her hypocrisy and all the mistakes she makes. They just are overjoyed to have someone who's a part of that body run her down so that they can say, see, look, we told you these Christians are like this. We told you that's how they are. We told you that's how they behave. And I just couldn't help but think, oh, he's missed it. He's missed it. I don't know if he's just hurt and wounded and needed to vent somewhere and he decided the Wall Street Journal was the place to do that. But all he's done is wound the bride. I wanted to, I wanted to call and say, go and I'll go with you. Let's go talk to the elder. Let's go have a conversation. We don't need to litigate this in front of the world. We've accomplished nothing. And in fact, we've disparaged the bride. The reason, number one, that we are called to love the church is because the mission of God goes forward in the world when we do. That's number one. The second reason why we're called to love through costly acts of service is that we are established. We are a people who were established by love displayed as costly service. Let me show you what I mean. So go now to verse one in chapter 13. In verse one, we find this. Let's read the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. <coughs> Pardon me. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that's not just a time statement there. That verse can also be translated, he loved them in fullness or to completion. He loved them all the way to the very end, to the greatest extent of love. That's how he loved them. And then that sets up what he's gonna do next. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter, in true Simon Peter fashion, don't you love Peter? Said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
If you, do, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Okay, so looking at this story, the first thing we need to notice is in verse one, when he says um, that Jesus loved them to the end, having known and loved those who were his, he loved them to the very end. One of the things he's, he's pointing to is the cross. He's showing us that what's gonna come next is gonna represent the full expression, the full extent of his love. And then in verse eight, we find Simon Peter, good old Simon Peter, saying, well, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, right? Because Jesus had just said to him, if I don't wash you, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. Well, why would he say that? I mean, is, is he literally talking about, if Peter, if you don't let me get down right now and wash your feet, then you don't have a part in me? No, what he's saying is this. He's saying the thing I'm doing is, is a, a uh, pointing to the final act of service that I'm gonna do for you. I am pointing to the cross by washing your feet because the cross is the true act of service. It's the true thing that will wash you. And if you're not washed by my cross, then you have no part in me. And the full extent of his love is not in washing the disciples' feet. The full extent of his love is in washing those who are his through his cross and his sacrifice on the cross. So the washing of the feet is there to point us to and help us to see the cross of Jesus. He's symbolizing the cross as an act of service through washing the disciples' feet. So that's why I say that one of the things that we're supposed to learn from this and one of the reasons why we are to love each other in costly acts of service is that we recognize that we were established by love displayed as costly service. That's what he's showing us here. The church exists, the church exists because Christ died on the cross, the most costly act of service that there is. We see this again when he says in the verses we already read, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Now, how many of you, when you read that, recognize, well, in what way is loving each other a new commandment? Because in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, we already know that he said, hey, love your neighbor as yourself, right? We have all kinds of Old Testament commands about loving each other, that, that God's people should love each other. So how is this a new commandment? Well, it's new in three ways, but one is particularly important, right? It's new... I'll tell you the two and then I'll tell you the most important one for us today. It's new in the sense that the, the expectation of what it means to love, the bar has been raised. So it's new in the expectation because he says, you are to love each other how? As I have loved you. So there's a new expectation of how that love is supposed to be done. There's also a new empowerment for that love. He's saying, I'm gonna give you a new type of power. So it's new both in its expectation of how deep and wide and long the love is that you show. And it's new, not just in its expectation, it's new in its empowerment. Because see, there's a new power given to obey the command that will come when the spirit comes. And he's saying, I'm gonna pour my spirit into you and there's gonna be a whole new way that you do it. But the third way, and the most important one for us today, that this is a new commandment, is it's new because it has a new context. See, that Old Testament command is love your neighbor. That's, that's love everybody. That still holds true and that call is still true for believers. But the church has not yet come into existence. What brings the church into existence? 
the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. And once the cross has been established, now this thing's called the church has been established. It now exists and it didn't exist before. So when he says love one another so that the world would see who I am, he's saying I'm, I'm placing you in a new context of love where you are to love one another uniquely and specially as those who are mine together. That's how it's a new commandment. So what does all that tell us? It tells us that we live as a part of this thing called the church because of a costly act of service. And if the thing that established us is a costly act of service, then is it fair to expect that the thing that should define us and mark us going forward after we've been established is also costly acts of service? In other words, the thing that begins us sets the culture that is to be us for the rest of our existence. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've established you through the most costly act of service, the most costly display of love that has ever been. And now you, my people, having been established by that costly act of service, are to show your love in the exact same way again and again and again. The character of the act which establishes something also defines the character of that thing going forward. Here, I'll give you an example of that. When I meet with young uh, couples that are about to get married, one of the discussions that always comes up is how's the wedding planning going, right? And how does that discussion often go? It usually often goes like this. Uh, fiance, wife, to be, says, I am planning this, I am planning that, I am doing the photography, getting the photographer, I've got the wedding cake, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done that. And I turn to groom-to-be, or husband-to-be, and I say, and what have you done? And the answer is, I have said, good job, honey. <laughs> and one of the things I always implore all my husbands-to-be is get involved in the planning process. I'm not saying you gotta pick the cake because you probably don't care, and that's okay that you don't care. All right? But what you do need to do is participate with your future spouse in the planning of your wedding, not leave it all to her. Why? Because the, the thing you do in preparation for this marriage that is to come, the way you serve her and love her and listen to her and participate in the decision making and the way you lead in it will set a tone for how you're going to lead as the spiritual head of your home in the days ahead. This is not just, a, you're not just planning a wedding, you're preparing for a marriage. And so I don't, I'm not this like angry sounding. I sound angry. I'm not angry. <coughs> I'm not angry at the guy. But I usually say something to the effect of, you need to be involved, man. Get in the game. Be, I, look, I know you don't care about the China or whatever it is that has to be picked out. I know, it's fine. But you need to be involved and engaged and listening and serving her because you're, you're establishing a marriage. And as you establish a marriage, the way you live in engagement is gonna establish a culture for that thing because the thing, the action which establishes the covenant, what does it do? It then goes on to become the, the, the ethos or the culture of that thing in the days ahead. Okay, is that too confusing? Is that all convoluted or is that okay? All right, so that's just an example that I think of when I think of this. So here we go. Third thing, third thing we see here reason why we're called to love through costly acts of service is because we're supposed to become like Jesus. Real complicated, right? Because we're supposed to become like Jesus. In verse 34, we heard that, right? He said, love one another, how? He gives us, he gives us a demonstration of the kind of, the way we're supposed to love each other and he just showed it to us in washing the disciples' feet. 
Love one another as how, church? As I have loved you. That's a high bar, yes? The walk of a believer, look, we're not just a part of a people who were established by costly act, of, uh, costly act of service. We are a people who know personally the one who performed that costly act of service. And we're told that each day of our lives, we're supposed to become more like him. That's our great ambition, that we would be like Jesus. That the trajectory of his life would be the trajectory of our lives. So that each day we would become more and more and more like him. So why are we supposed to demonstrate our love for one another in costly acts of service? Because that's how he demonstrated his. Listen, the trajectory of Jesus's life was towards the cross. You realize this, yes? Which means that his life moved in the direction of more and more costly service. Not towards more and more comfort, not towards more and more privilege, but towards more and more costly service. And if that was the trajectory of his life, and I'm supposed to become like him, then it stands to reason that the trajectory of my life should move towards increasingly costly acts of service the longer I live. That I should grow more and more in costly service and less and less in comfort and privilege. And this is, here's my fear. As your pastor, this is hard to realize in the world in which we live for a couple reasons. Because as we get older and the aches and pains set in and things get harder and harder, unless we find joy in serving one another, we will move towards comfort and privilege all day long. It becomes harder. This is, I find it true in my own soul and I find it true when I talk to brothers and sisters about this who, have, who are years ahead of me that the older we get, the harder it is to let go of our preferences. That the older we get, the harder it is to let go of our preferences. Why? I think because life wears us down and it's hard. And sometimes it's easy to convince ourselves that, you know what, I paid my dues. And, and now it's time for those who are coming up behind me to pay their dues. And so it should be fitting that I would get my desires, that I would have my preferences. I know that's, that's, the natural way my brain starts to work. I don't know if you would admit the same, but I, I find my brain works that way. Friends, and it gets reinforced in the workplace, right? The higher position you aspire to or get, then the less that you have to do the costly acts of service and the more somebody who's coming behind you now needs to pay their dues and do their thing. That's not the trajectory of Jesus's life and it shouldn't be the trajectory of ours. The trajectory of my life is supposed to be towards increasingly costly acts of service and towards increasing laying down of my preferences, laying down of my desires, laying down of my wants to serve and to love my brothers and sisters. That's what maturity in Christ means and looks like. And oh, how I pray that I and you would live that out, that we would live that out. But I'm fearful for another reason too. It's not just that I think as we get older, it gets harder to do it because it's human nature that it gets harder to do it. And I really think the remedy is don't ever stop doing costly acts of service at every turn. Because here's the promise. As we do them, if you do them and they wear you down over time, then you're gonna do them less. But here's the miracle of the gospel is that he says, if we do them, what we'll find in those costly acts of service is increasing joy. 
And as we increase in joy, we'll increase in our willingness to to lay down our preferences, to lay down our privileges, to lay down our desires so that others can be loved and cared for. But it will only happen if as we do it, we get joy from it. Do you, you follow me? And the only way to get joy from it is to keep not just doing it because you're supposed to do it, but to keep going back to the king and saying, give me joy in this. I want joy in this. Give me joy in it. Let me lay it down again. Let me lay down my preference again. Let me lay down my rights again. And let me do it. And let me see you and know you when I do it. Because that's what you did. So when I do it, I should know you better and more. And that's what I really want. And when I get that, then I get joy. You don't get joy just from laying down your preferences. You get hardship from laying down your preferences. You get difficulty. You get less pleasure in the moment. But if laying down our privileges and our preferences gets us more of Jesus, more understanding of him, more enjoyment of him, then it will produce more joy. And if it produces more joy, then we'll keep doing it. As best I can figure, that's the biblical model of how you keep growing in that trajectory. The other thing that I fear, and, and it is sometimes it's a fear, I have to lay it down before the Lord. We live in such a consumer-driven culture. I know that's a cliche, and I know it's like the thing that pastors talk about all the time, but it is true. We live in a one-click purchase culture. How do you get people to sacrifice things in a one-click purchase culture? where everything is at our fingertips. Everything comes with one click, one glance at a screen, one statement, all you need. I mean, literally, we can just sit in our homes now. We don't have to get up to turn things on. Alexa, play whatever. Any piece of music I've ever heard in my entire life. Alexa, play it. I'm not bashing Alexa, although it's weird she can hear you in your homes. How does the church, how do we continue to press towards sacrifice and costliness and laying down preferences and desires in light of the place where we live? I think it's uniquely challenging. Friends, I, I don't have a remedy for you other than to say, please be careful with how convenient you make things in your life. Just be careful with that. Think about it. Think, be thoughtful about it as you engage. And look, is it, is it good to partake of conveniences at points? Yes, there's nothing wrong with some things being convenient. But as you do that, please be aware of the possible dangers of it. Yes, be mindful, be thoughtful about what convenience can do to the heart of a believer. Last two things, and these are quicker ones, intentionally so. The fourth reason why we're supposed to love each other with costly acts of service is because we're not greater than Jesus. We are not greater than Jesus. Now, hopefully all, all of us would go, yeah, no duh. But did you notice what Jesus said to the disciples? He says, I, do you know what I've done to you? Do you see what I've done? And then he says this, if I, you call me Lord and teacher, you call me Lord and rabbi, and you're right, that's exactly what I am. And if I, your Lord, if I, your teacher, have washed your feet, then what should you do? Wash one another's feet. You should do the same thing for one another. And what, in other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the greatest one and I've done this. Do you know that in this context, not even a Jewish slave would wash feet? 
It was a hospitality requirement in the ancient Near East and in Israel that your feet would be washed if you come in off a dusty road. But that was reserved for only Gentile slaves. Not even a Jewish slave was considered low enough to wash feet. So when Jesus takes off his outer garment and gets down, wraps the towel around his waist and gets down to wash their feet, do you see why Peter goes, you'll never wash my feet? Because he presumes Jesus is the greatest one and this is for the lowest of the low. That's who does this task. There's a reason why none of them got up to do it. No one's there to do it. It needs to be done. And Jesus gets up and he does it. And then he says to them, I am in fact your Lord and teacher. I am the greatest one. And you, if I've done this for you, must do it for one another. Here's what he's just said to you and I. There is no act of service. There is no act of service that is beneath you. There is nothing that he would invite you to do, call you to do, give you opportunity to do, to which you should say, you know, that's really beneath me. Now, I know we don't say that out loud. But when there's a need in front of you, does something in your heart sort of sometimes prick up and say, yeah, I don't don't know if I'm gonna lower myself to that. I don't know if I'm gonna go all the way down there. And what Jesus has just said to us is if I, if I have lowered myself to wash these feet and to go on that cross, then there is nothing that is beneath you. And I don't care what status you acquire in this life. I don't care what privilege or position you acquire in this life. Nothing is beneath you because the cross was not beneath our king. And you and I, we're not greater than him. And when we think something is beneath us, we act as if we are. May it never be. May it never be that we would, with our actions, say, I'm greater than my Jesus, because we are not. And the fifth thing that we see is that love is only proven through costly service. Love is only proven through costly service. First John, so this is John now writing. And First John is, is really, a, it's a letter, an epistle that explains to us a lot about what John means when he tells us to love one another. So let me flip there and show this to you. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, here's what we find. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you see what John has just said? He's really expounding upon what we've just heard him or what we've seen him display for us in talking about John 13 and the events that transpired there. What he said to us is, you are to love one another with costly acts of service. Why costly acts of service, we might ask? Because it's the only way to prove that love is real. Because that's how you prove that love is real. And not just empty sentiment, not just words. I love you. Right, It's great to say I love you. Say it all the time. But don't just say I love you. Don't just love in word or in talk, but in what, church? In deed and in truth. What John is saying is the world can only know, the world that needs to see a community of love can only know that that love is genuine when it's displayed as costly service because words sometimes are cheap. But costly service is of immense value. And it's what displays the genuineness, the sincerity, the authenticity of love. It's when it's displayed in costly service. 